if you were really up to date, you would say, that was lit. I have threatened my boys that I would dab for them. <laughs> and they said, no, don't dab. <laughs> that was lit. Even so, boys, God's faithfulness remains secure, whether your dad dabs or not. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 2 today. We'll be looking at the end of chapter 2, beginning with verse 42, as we wind up our August series on uh, the Sabbath. Sabbath, Lord's Day, is how we've been doing it. For those of you who may be here for the first time, or those who are returning after a long time, welcome back, students. It is great to see you here. Just a reminder that at Chattanooga Valley, we have a sort of liturgical rhythm in which three times a year we um, pull out four weeks. We celebrate communion every week of, those, of that four weeks in order to celebrate um, significant moments uh, of, the, of our Father's great mission in Jesus Christ, the moment in which Christ came as a child, Advent, in order to redeem for himself by his own body and blood a special people, which is what we celebrate at Easter, in order to equip them and train them and send them and set them throughout his world, as a display of his stunning glory, which is what we celebrate in August. We celebrate his mission here in August because in the rhythms of our culture, this is when we're gearing up to get back to school, get back to work. Many of us are entering into a new grade. Many of us are entering into new responsibilities at work. And I want us to be remembering that all of us are where we are, in the circumstances we are, in the jobs that we have, in the schools that we have, in the classes that we have, not by some happenstance, but because our God lives, and in Jesus Christ, He is on a mission to make all things new. You are where you are because He is on a mission. And that's what we try to remind ourselves of in August. This August, we've been considering the Sabbath Lord's Day as a gift, as a central gift of our Father in that mission. Because we've been considering the claim that central to living faithfully and relevantly to our commission as disciples of Jesus in this world and for this world is this call to remember, to honor, to celebrate the Sabbath Lord's Day. Now, it is common in our culture uh, to 
It's so common that we do it unconsciously to pick and choose the, the kinds of truths that we like and to set aside the kinds of truths that we don't like. And so truly we have to enter into this series by faith because the assertion is that central to God's present 21st century design for living faithfully and relevantly as our commission to our commission as disciples of Jesus in this world and for this world is the call to remember and to honor and to celebrate the sabbath for by the sabbath lord's day in fact the lord is teaching us and training us first to cease from our labors. To use the language that has already been used this morning, to cease from our own self-trust and the worries and the anxieties that are rooted in that. And then secondly, to develop the habit and practice the habit of actually entering into, striving to enter into the rest of his completed and continuing work, especially in Jesus. And as we slowly and often painfully learn to cease from our own fretfulness and find our rest in his completed and continuing labors, we find that we are raised to a new life of celebration we find that we see the world differently. We find that we see one another differently. We find that we see our neighbors differently. We find that we see our enemies differently. We see them in the light of the risen Lord. And everything changes. And so that in every circumstance, in every conversation, in every relationship, in every responsibility, we find ourselves increasingly celebrating the wonder of His amazing grace. But not merely celebrating it. We like to compartmentalize, and so we like to think, okay, I raised my hands, I'm celebrating. But we actually are equipped and strengthened and trained, as we're going to see today, I hope, to participate in His continuing mission. Not just watch it, not just cheer it, but to participate in it. It's a stunning thing. And so to get at that, today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. You remember the context. The context is Jesus has, has uh, raised, risen from the dead. He has seen a number of people over the course of some 40 days or so. The disciples are with him and they actually watch him ascend bodily... Not, not without his body. He didn't uh, escape and his body collapsed. He ascended bodily into heaven. And they stand in slack-jawed amazement. And they had been given instructions then to wait. Because when he is seated upon, upon the throne, he will then distribute gifts to his people. The gift, of course, of the Spirit, which we read about in the first part of Acts chapter 2. The effect of which is what we will read now. 
Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And in the Lord, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. Or as my friend Tub, who is now seeing and celebrating the Lord's reign visibly in his presence. <clears throat> that is good stuff. I hope that you have not become so accustomed to that passage that you don't see the wonder of it all. Let's go to him in prayer. And so, Father, how desperately we recognize more and more every day. We need your spirit. We need your spirit that will cause, cause us to cease, cause our hearts and our minds to be still. Your spirit to draw us into your completed and continuing work. Your spirit to strengthen us, to see it, to savor it, to celebrate it. How desperately we need your spirit to strengthen us to hear your word. And so, Father, we pray as your children coming to you in Jesus' name that you would indeed allow us to hear you speak. Allow us to hear it with faith that we may be changed. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. This notion of uh, Sabbath, Lord's Day, I recognize is a touchy subject. I recognize, especially for those of us in our circles, who somehow have an allergic reaction to anything that smacks of effort or obligation or duty, I recognize that it's a difficult topic. I recognize also, that the challenge is weeding through the complexities of our emotional responses to the topic. But I'm increasingly convinced that to the extent that we as people who bear the name of the risen Lord Jesus, the Christ, to the extent just like the God's people of old, to the extent that we, that we fail to remember and to honor 
and to celebrate this Sabbath now Lord's Day, we actually, as one commentator says, actually embezzle from ourselves. We actually embezzle the riches of our inheritance from ourselves and squander it. But it's a double crime because not only are we embezzling from ourselves, but we're actually robbing the world of the answer of the living God to their cry. We once were lost, but now we're found and we gather to celebrate it. The gift of the Sabbath is an opportunity for the Lord to say, and this is for you too, to the world. Our gathering for worship is not our retreat from the world, it's our gift to the world. As a dear friend says, the pattern of Scripture is, come, won't you go with me? Come and see. We should be bursting at the seams. Because this day, the Sabbath Lord's Day, is the day where we get to enter into the present experience of the coming kingdom. We get to experience what our world kills itself to discover. That's what the Sabbath Lord's Day is all about. Because we are a new people, a people of the coming kingdom, who bear the name of the king. The gift of the Sabbath, you see, is, is not a burden. It's a gift. Remembering and honoring and celebrating the Sabbath is not something we do to keep God off our backs. It's something we do because he has come to give it to us that we may live and we may flourish as indeed we were created to do. Remembering and honoring and celebrating the Sabbath come Lord's Day is the one day a week we get to enter into and practice the life of the kingdom is not merely a matter of taking a day off from our regular labors. But it is a matter more to the point of striving together to enter into and to celebrate and to participate the completed and continuing work of God to make all things new in Christ. We remember that last week we talked about celebrating and we talked about God in Genesis 2 as the artist who has just completed a masterpiece and he is sitting back, not phew, glad that's over, but he is sitting back and he is savoring it, he's reveling in Work well done. Now some of you may know, and you may have kids where you encountered this, where you say to your child, look at that, isn't that great? And the child is so excited. That is so cool, can I do it too? The Sabbath is our loving Father turning to us and saying, now you try it. 
Let's do this together. And you have to understand. If we have heard the gospel with faith. Listen to me. I'm not being legalistic here. I'm being gospel. If we have heard the gospel with faith, then what we see described here before us is unavoidable. It is necessary. It is a necessary consequence of having heard the gospel with faith. That's the consistent testimony of Scripture from beginning to end. Yes, there are corollaries to that that are very unnerving. But it remains the consistent pattern of Scripture. It is possible to hear the gospel, but not with faith. It describes here this passage, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And then there's a similar passage again at the end of chapter 4. This passage describes the visible life of the coming kingdom. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luke is saying that prayer is being answered here. That's what he's saying here. For this is the visible life of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Though admittedly not yet perfect and not yet complete as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 1. And for Luke, in terms of Luke's summary, these are the four distinctive elements, the four distinctive features of life in the Spirit. That is, life by the Spirit as citizens of this kingdom. And I hope you, want to, I hope you see as we look at this, that these, that is a deeply personal thing, but hear me, North American congregation. It is not a private or individualistic thing. In fact, it is stunningly, shockingly interpersonal, even interracial, and even multilingual. Scott, this morning during Sunday school, was not showing off his great fluency in Swahili because I bet that he doesn't know more words that are in, than are in that song. But what he was teaching us is that Swahili is as much our language as English. Because it's the language of our king. It's deeply personal and is deeply interpersonal and it's scandalous, scandalously public and visible. What are those four things? Notice with me. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, which are not synonyms, and prayers. Teaching, 
fellowship. Breaking of bread, we may also say, just to help you connect it, Eucharisto and prayer. But I want you to notice this. So, so some of you might have a translation that actually says, that actually reads something like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. But it actually reads the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. Because these four things are distinctive. This is not just any old fellowship. It's not just any old meal. It's not just any old teaching. It's not just any old prayer. There's all kinds of teaching in the world today. There's all kinds of fellowship. Some better, some worse. There's all kinds of breaking of bread. There's all kinds of prayer. What sets this apart is that it is the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayer. What does that possibly mean? What distinguishes the teaching from teaching, or to say it here, what makes a sermon different than a TED Talk? Well, we actually get a hint in our passage because in verse 42, he actually describes what that teaching is. It's the apostles' teaching. That's the kind of teaching we're talking about. It's the apostles' teaching. It's the same, he's using the language of apostles here in the same way we speak about the apostles' creed. It's not that they wrote it, but that it's, it's a creed that summarized the content and the shape of the apostles' teaching. And what is it that the apostles taught? Well, the apostles taught the gospel. And the gospel is this. It is the good news. It is the announcement of an invading, conquering, victorious king. And the reason it is good news is because that king is none other than the creator God who has been faithful to his promise to make all things new. That's good news. And that's what the apostles taught. It began with Christ. It ends with Christ. It was centered on Christ. It was shaped by Christ. It was Christ. It was the apostles' teaching. It wasn't just any old teaching. I was talking with somebody yesterday who was grappling with some church issues. And she said, I just don't know how we make the church grow. Is it this program? Is it that program? Is, do, we need, do we need contemporary music or do we need traditional music? I said, oh, that's, all that is bogus. It's all secondary, if not irrelevant. What makes a church grow is the name of Jesus Christ. That's 
what sets a church apart. And that is the apostles' teaching. Have you ever wondered if, if, it's, if the church is so dependent on the style of music? Have you ever wondered why there's so little about that? And why there's so much about Christ? Because the apostles want us to know it's Christ. And so very similarly also, this fellowship, this fellowship is distinctive. It's the apostles' fellowship. He describes it actually in verse 44. They were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had need. That's crazy. That's irrational. That's irresponsible. That's not reasonable at all. What are you going to do in retirement? That's downright Wasteful and prodigal. And yet, it's the fellowship that distinguishes a gathered people among whom is Christ at the center. Because that's who our Christ is. The breaking of the bread is not merely that we're eating together. It's that we know that we are gathered together by the power of the name of Jesus. And so we, as, as Luke tells us right here, they received, verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Why? God didn't make the food. Mary made it, or Sue Ann, or whoever. But in the light of the good news, we recognize that all good things come from the Father. And so as we sit at table together, we recognize that this is an entirely new experience in the history of the world. And so also with prayer. Brian Chappell has a book entitled Praying Backwards in which he is making exactly this point. Christ-centered prayer begins with a completed work of Christ and works backwards. I don't know what you're facing today, but a Christ-centered prayer begins with the end in view of what you are facing today in the confidence of the resurrection and works backward from there. Lord, because you have already secured the victory, because you have already granted me the strength, may I have peace today, even though I don't know what tomorrow will bring. What makes these things distinct, what makes them distinct, 
is that they are Christ-centered. They lead to Christ. They flow from Christ. They are organized by Christ, which means that they are, in, they are inverted. What sets the, the teaching and the fellowship and the Eucharisto and the prayer apart is that they're inverted. They're inverted values and, and habits and logic. What do you mean I give away everything? Because that's where my security is. I have to have stuff. I have to have my phone close to me. I might miss something. If I had an extra phone that I didn't need, I would give it to you. But I need my phone. You understand? That makes perfect sense to us. But the gospel of God and Jesus Christ inverts that. It inverts our sense of right and wrong. Can somebody hand me that box right down there so that I don't... Can you hand me that box right there? So that I don't go... Um, thank you. It inverts our sense of rights. We live and we have been taught that we have a right to be justified. We have a right to be exonerated. We have a right to own stuff. We have a right to control our lives. And after all, our destinies are in our hands. But the gospel inverts all that. Now we have the privilege to give it all away. We have the privilege to absorb to ourselves, the shame and the guilt of the other, our wives or our children or our neighbors or strangers or even our enemies. After all, that is exactly what Christ did who left the comforts and the conveniences of heaven above and came in the form of a servant who was obedient even joyfully to the point of death on the cross. You see, because that's the heartbeat of the king. And that's the basic pattern of life in the kingdom. And so it is with the teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread. But notice this, they did it day by day. Some of you are saying, oh Dan, it's day by day they did these things. But it is very clear to us through the rest of, script, throughout, through the, rest of the New Testament that they especially did these things on the Lord's Day, that is the first day of the week after the Sabbath, on the seventh day of the week. But what they practiced then in a special way became their distinctive habits every day. Their day, our day-to-day -day life is increasingly to be characterized by the values, the inverted values and inverted habits of the king and life in his kingdom. What we remember and honor and celebrate on the Sabbath Lord's Day is to burst the bounds of our fragmented, compartmentalized life. A friend of mine who is an elder in another church spoke of having to speak to a man about some concerns that were going on in his house, in his family. The man was an elder. My friend said, well, I've been asked to speak to you about these things because they are of deep concern. He said, wait a minute. This is in my house. These are things going on in my house, right? Right. And he said, that's none of your business. 
You want to speak to me about what's going on in the church, you can speak to me about that. But things that are going on in my house, that's my business. Brothers and sisters, that is anti-gospel. Because it is simply not true. Our king came and he consumes our life. Every cubic inch of it. So that what we remember and honor and celebrate on the Sabbath, Lord's Day, is to increasingly break the bonds, break the walls of separation in our fragmented, compartmentalized life and increasingly characterize every moment of it. And this is why the Sabbath, Lord's Day, is a gift. It's a whole day where we get to give time and attention and practice to the values and habits of life in the coming kingdom. And notice, that's how Luke opens it up. Verse 42, they devoted themselves. That language is language of intentional, intensive attention, sustained attention to these things. They were, they were perfectionists in the performing arts, so to speak. They wanted to get every little twitch down, and so they give sustained attention to it. Their, their entire energy was consumed in these practices of, a, of teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted. And what happened? Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders were being done, signs were being done through the apostles. The word that the ESV translates here as awe, some of you will see if you have an ESV in front of you, there's a little footnote and they say, or fear. The reason they say that is because the word there is phobia. It's the same word that we know as fear. And it's used by Luke only two other times. One in Luke chapter 1. Does anybody know what happens in Luke chapter 1? Think shepherds in the field. What happens? The great heavenly messengers, a host of heavenly messengers, comes and they say, they say, behold, the promise is fulfilled. The son is born. And they go, hey, cool, lit. No, they don't. They fall down in fear. And that's the word that is here. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, you have to understand something. As we gather here on a Sunday, Lord's Day, in the name of the Lord to worship, we are none other than heavenly manifestations of the glory of God. Does our community know that heavenly messengers have, have arrived in their midst? Are they going, oh my word, what's happening there? Because that's the effect of a fellowship that is born of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ with faith. So what does it mean for us then to participate in the power of God's completed and continuing work 
by the resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ? What does it mean for us to participate today in the life of the king and his kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven? Just a few ideas, five. One, they have this language of all things in common. All things in common. Time. Time. It's not ours. It's a gift. To be ordered by the king. I'm sorry, I don't have time. You're right, you don't have time because it belongs to the king. Convenience. Brothers and sisters, that's our culture's notion of the flourishing life. It is not the king's notion. Sacrificial service is the king's notion of the flourishing life. Money. Oops. I'm sorry, I, I just can't give that today. I don't have enough. You're right, you don't have enough because it's the king's. It's his. To be dispensed at his pleasure for his purposes according to his values. Talent. I, I can't do that. <laughs> Moses said that. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> And the Lord responded by, <laughs> I know you have no talent. Because I am your wisdom. I am your strength. I am your word. It's his. I have no talent is not a reason to refuse the king because he grants the talent for that to which he calls you. Rights. I have a right to this. Do you want me to give up that? Yes. Because I'm sorry, contrary to what our culture is telling you, you have no rights. You've been bought at a price. Not one of us in this room is our own. We belong to the king. And the king has given us to each other. And the king has given us to our community. And the king has given us to our neighbors. And the king has given us to the school across the way. Second thing, glad and generous hearts. They rejoiced to give. They rejoiced to give to family and to friends. But notice this. They rejoiced to give to strangers. They rejoiced to give to enemies. They devoted themselves. Who devoted themselves? If you go all the way back to the first beginning of chapter 2, you'll see. Verse 8. Excuse me, starting with verse 5. Now there were, dwelling, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together. Oh, what's going on? They were bewildered, and because each one was hearing, their own, hearing them speak in their own language, and they were amazed and astonished. And are not these men Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now listen to this. Some people are calling this Luke's table of nations. Parthians. Medes, 
Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Now listen to his next phrase. Luke, our Gentile author. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. What was so stunning about this fellowship that, that we just read about in verse 42 and following is that it was made up of people who are natural born enemies. And they were loving each other sacrificially. Sharing all of their possessions as if they all had a right to them. It's simply stunning. And they were doing it gladly with generous hearts. What is a glad and generous heart? It's a heart of jubilee. The basic pattern of a jubilee heart. You remember this year of jubilee was when all debts were supposed to be forgiven. And there's no evidence it was actually celebrated. There was provision for it, but it wasn't celebrated. But here you see it. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the jubilee has come. And God's people live it out. They forgive debts. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me an apology. You don't owe me five bucks. You don't owe me a hundred bucks. You don't owe me anything. Because King Jesus has risen from the dead. Behold, all things are new. And we live it. Breathe it. Not just with our friends. But with our enemies. Because that's what peacemaking looks like. Table fellowship, not merely with family and friends. Gentiles do that. But the table fellowship that is distinctively gospel is fellowship with strangers, is fellowship with the least, the lost, and the lonely, even those who we think may be our enemies. Some of you may know that Japan is one of the hardest fields in the world in terms of the gospel progress. But do you know who's the, who is the most effective evangelist missionary in Japan? Just in general. The Koreans. Why? Because the Koreans, as with many other Asian nations, were horribly and violently oppressed by imperial Japan. So when a Korean missionary comes in love to proclaim the forgiveness, the free and full and loving forgiveness of Jesus Christ to their former enemies, who in fact have not yet taken responsibility for it, it's stunning. Brothers and sisters, in the context of our congregation, how hard is it to See a face that you haven't seen before and to walk across the room and say, I'm so thankful that you are here. I know it might be somebody that you met before. Take it from me. You get used to it. Just pre-confess. I probably have met you ten times before. Would you forgive me? They were 
devoted to this. They were giving intentional, sustained attention to this. They came looking for someone to spend time. Why? Because that is the king. He left his throne on high and came looking for us. Did we know he was looking for us? No, we didn't. Did we want him to be looking for us? No, we didn't. Were we happy he was looking for us? No, we weren't. Are we glad after the fact? You bet. Brothers and sisters, we have a school across the way. And I do not know the exact statistics, but the number of shattered homes is stunning. The number of fatherless children is stunning. Not just those who are physically absent, but those who are absent emotionally, spiritually, and the kids flounder. Statistics tell us that if a child has one big person, one adult, who gives them attention and says in word or in deed, I love you, that the, that the um, risk of their life running off the rails is almost cut in half. We have a whole congregation here of God's love poised to walk 50 yards across the street to seek out the least, the lost, and the lonely. Can we do that? Don't mean to be legalistic. Don't mean to be manipulative. I mean to declare. King Jesus rose from the dead. He's making all things new. And we are here not only as evidence of that, but as agents of that. Let's go to him in prayer.